Good morning, Rocky Peak. It's nice to be with you this morning. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're if you're up to speed on uh, on all the happenings at Rocky Peak, you know that Pastor Dre uh, has been out on medical leave. He's actually improving, and all your prayers uh, for him have been really appreciated. Um, yeah, we're really excited about that. Uh, in addition, uh, this last week, Pastor Michael um, took the, the week off the, for a, a minor surgery. He's planning on being back this next weekend to start our brand new series. Uh, I talked to him uh, yesterday. He's doing really well. Uh, but that means that this weekend is my first time teaching on this stage. Um, so I, I appreciate all of your encouragement. Um, if, I, if I faint, they've got a fourth guy in the wings just to pick up the notes and keep going. Um, but I, I'm really excited. As someone who, uh, who grew up here at the church, my family started coming here when I was in first grade. Um, I met my wife serving uh, in the middle school ministry here. Uh, we got married on this campus. We dedicated our kids um, up here on this stage. Uh, you maybe have seen me doing announcements or baptizing someone. Uh, and, and even still, when they, when they came to me a few months ago and they were like, hey, would you mind being like the backup? I was like, sure, that's never really gonna happen. Uh, <laughs> Michael got taken out by a pine cone and then did four Easter services uh, the same week. And so I was like, well then, I mean, sure, I'll be the backup. Uh, and yet, here I am. And so uh, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, it's a huge honor for me to get to be up here teaching, uh, teaching all of you. I'm excited for the passages that we're gonna open up uh, together. And so if you're, uh, if you're brand new, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet that's there as a tool for you as uh, you follow along. Uh, it really is there to help you learn. And so the best way you learn is uh, doodling in the margins, uh, just like me, then go ahead and do that. Uh, it's just there uh, for your sake, but that is there in case you want that. Uh, I'm gonna pray for us as we uh, prepare to jump into God's word. Uh, Father, we, uh, God, first of all, we just wanna lift up uh, Michael and Dre and just ask that your hand of healing would be over both of them. Uh, they've been such a blessing to us as a church and we ask that you would uh, restore them quickly uh, to this place of teaching. Uh, we pray uh, once again, God, for everyone affected by this week's fires, uh, that, your, uh, that your comfort and your care would be with them and that they would see your power through this circumstance. And we pray for all of us that as we're here that you would open up our hearts to the truth of your word, that you, would, that you would meet us here, that you would reveal yourself in new ways. And that as you reveal yourself and as we grab hold of your truth, uh, that, it would, uh, that it would cause massive transformation in our life and that we would run into what you have for us, that we would be motivated to pursue you and to pursue your vision for our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So on that note sheet, your very first uh, section on there says metamorphosis transformed by truth. Today, we're wrapping up our series in 2 Corinthians, the series that we've been in for quite a while, the, the whole broader series that has been called metamorphosis, talking about this idea of God's transformation in our life. And so this series is based on a letter by the Apostle Paul written to a church that five or six years earlier that he had been there at its founding. He had shared the good news of Jesus uh, and they had taken hold of it and he had transformed their lives and they began this new community. Uh, but then shortly thereafter, after his leaving, they kind of got a little bit off track. And we see some of that in the letter of 1 Corinthians and now in 2 Corinthians, uh, things have gotten even, uh, even worse. And so in this mini-series that we've been in and uh, that we've been calling Metamorphosis Transformed by Truth, this kind of third part of our, of our larger series, 
In these last three chapters, Paul has been really challenging some critics who have come along, some critics who have come in teaching a, a different gospel, teaching a different Jesus, who have been teaching a different way to relate with God that is, is threatening the, the health of the church at Corinth. And so Paul's doing something he's really not very comfortable with, uh, something that didn't bring him a lot of joy, but he's had to kind of boast about himself because of what the people are saying about him and kind of attacking his authority and through that, attacking the truth of God's word. And so he's had to kind of boast about himself and at the same time, he's taken the opportunity to boast about his weaknesses and the areas where he, he doesn't match up. And he's even boasted about how, how God has used him in spite of his weaknesses and oftentimes specifically because of his weaknesses. And then we saw last week, Paul began to, to offer his final challenge to the church at Corinth, challenging them to take a hard look at themselves. Instead of challenging his, uh, his authentic authority as an apostle, as an apostle, <laughs> to instead look at themselves and ask if they're authentic followers of Jesus. And so today, that's where we're going to be jumping in this morning. Uh, and so as you open up to 2 Corinthians 13, I want to help sort of set the stage emotionally for where Paul is at. It's easy for us sometimes to, uh, to be so removed from the initial writing of the Bible that when we go to it, we treat it almost like a, a textbook or something where there's, there's no emotional context. But as we get here, there's, there's a heavy emotion involved in these last few chapters. Your next section on your note sheet is a crucial conversation. Uh, a crucial conversation is a a term that Michael has used a number of times to describe uh, those times when we have to have a, a difficult talk with someone where the stakes are high and so are the emotions. And so maybe you've had one like that. Maybe you've uh, had to have a, a talk with your boss at work about a, um, a project that everyone's working on together that's trending downward because your, your boss has been making some poor decisions. And you know that for the sake of the team and for the sake of the job, you're going to have to confront your boss on some decisions that they've made. And that's a, a high stakes conversation, but it's also going to be a high emotions conversation. Or maybe it's been in a, a romantic relationship you're in with your, your spouse or significant other. Maybe there have been some, uh, some just patterns in the relationship that need to be addressed. Maybe it's even stuff that you've uh, brought up before that hasn't gone well. And so you know that, uh, that by bringing it up, uh, that there are going to be some high emotions, but you also see that the stakes are high, that if, if, this, isn't, um, if this isn't fixed, that the relationship isn't going to make it. And so maybe you've also had some of these crucial conversations. I remember a time in my life um, where a close friend of mine was going through a really difficult season. And honestly, to call it a season kind of undercuts how long this period of multiple years of just thing after thing was kind of hitting them. Um, and I, we had maintained our friendship and we had been meeting multiple times during this and, and hanging out. And I, I had noticed uh, over the last few months how um, as this was wearing at them that they had started to instead of turn to beneficial things or continue to find other ways to deal with this hurt and this pain that, were, that was being caused and instead uh, they had started to lean on on alcohol to, to numb some of that pain right? and as, as a friend uh, you know what had turned into one or two or three nights are hanging out and seeing this happen and watching that evolve over time I began to be concerned and planned a time and pulled them aside and we had a, a really difficult, a, a crucial conversation um, 
where I confronted them with, hey, I, I know the pain, I know the suffering that you've been going through, and I'm kind of worried about this. And you can imagine uh, that the emotions were high. Right? There's a lot at stake. I'm concerned about my friend, but the emotions were high. And I had to multiple times over and over again reaffirm, man, I, I love you. I care about you. I want to see the best for your life. Uh, and I don't want to see you leaning on this, this crutch and, and leaning on something that's going to end up worsening what's already going on in your life. And if, if there's anything that I've seen to be true in 15 years of ministry, it's been that, that when these crucial conversations come up, uh, that oftentimes people don't naturally hear your heart and your love and your care for them. They feel the sting of the critique, right? And so you may have seen that in your own life in these, in these crucial conversation moments that you have to constantly reaffirm, like, no, I'm for you. This isn't about me judging you. I don't want to take something away from you. Like, the stakes are high and the emotions are high, but I care about you. And so we're going to see that for Paul. He's getting to the end of this crucial conversation. The stakes are high. The, the health of the church is at risk. And the emotions have been high. The last few chapters have been tense. We're going to watch him react the way that, that we would want to react in these situations as well. And he's going to begin to reaffirm his heart and his care for this church. And as we do that, we're going to see God's vision for our lives and our transformation uh, beginning to leak through. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 5, which is where uh, we wrapped up last week. Uh, it's that final challenge that Paul is offering this church sort of as their final wake-up call. And so Paul says this in verse 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? And so this is where Michael talked about last week that dimmer switch principle that there are times in our life where God shows us something, he, he shines some light in an area of our life, and instead of moving towards it, we move back from that into darkness. And that oftentimes uh, results in some spiritual momentum that the, the darkness begins to grow, that we step further and further back from the light that God is shining in our life. And we can find ourselves uh, living as if we had never uh, experienced any transformation in Jesus before, and this church is in that spot. They think that they're an amazing, strong church, uh, but the truth is that they're living like the world around them, and they're valuing the same things that their world is valuing instead of living uh, as Jesus intended for them. And so Paul is saying, hey, stop looking at me and asking whether or not I'm authentic. Take a hard look at yourself and look to see, is Jesus in you? And Michael talked about last week that the language in this verse is uh, language and actually kind of expects a positive answer. He's expecting them to look and, and to be reminded, that's right, Jesus is at work in us. Jesus does want to do something inside of us. And so he's expecting them to kind of wake up if they do the hard work of looking at themselves. And in verse 6 he says, and I trust that you will discover that we've not failed the test. He says, hey, when you look at yourself and realize that you really are changed by Jesus, that he's living in you, you'll remember that we're the ones who were there that he used to start that, that it was our message, our gospel that we brought. And so as you look at yourself and find yourself authentic, you'll see that, that we too have been authentic this entire time. Verse 7, now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we might have seemed to have failed. And so Paul says, hey, my heart is that you do what's good, 
that you love what is good and you hate what is evil and you get to live in God's vision for your life and you get to experience his power working through you as a church and in each of your lives individually. And it doesn't matter if that means that when we show up, everything is good and we don't have to, to call anyone out and we don't get to show off our authority that God has given us. It doesn't matter if people still think that we're weak because we don't have a, a chance to stand up strong. This isn't about us and our reputation, right? That our critics... My critics want to make it about me, but this is really about you and your health and living for God. He says in verse eight, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. He's just one more time reiterating for them, like this is about the gospel of Jesus and who he is. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's about him and grabbing hold of that truth. In verse nine, we are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. Right? The, the critics of Paul claim that he's weak because he, he didn't respond in strength uh, when there was division. Instead, he responded in humility. They claim that he's weak because he wouldn't accept money from them when he was there with them. They claim that he's weak because he's suffered. Um, and this whole time, Paul's been saying like, hey, no, I, I am strong when I'm weak because of God's power in me. Uh, but then also the Corinthians, they have this overinflated uh, view of themselves and they think that they're strong when really uh, they're teetering on the edge. Uh, but what Paul is saying is, hey, I would rather people think that I'm weak. I'd rather people think that I uh, am nothing and have you actually legitimately be strong than to have an opportunity to come and prove myself. He says, and our prayer is that you may be fully restored. If you have a, an old version uh, of the NIV, if, uh, if you're holding on to maybe a, an old Bible that you've uh, loved over the years, it actually, it's translated in the old version uh, that, you, that you may be perfected. Uh, but really, that's kind of a weaker translation than the, the more updated, fully restored. Uh, the idea isn't that he's hoping that they be brought to some ultimate level of perfection, but the word there would remind them of like the mending of fishing nets. Or for us, like taking an old classic car that's been left out to rust and kind of restoring it to its former glory. He's saying, hey, my heart, my desire for you, Corinthians, is that you would be fully restored, that you would be brought back to your former glory of where you once were in your relationship with Jesus. And then he says in verse 10, this is why I write these things when I'm absent. That when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. And th this verse reminds me of um, like when for the very first time, maybe parents leave older teenagers home alone, right? We all know the shenanigans that can happen when... Uh, Teenagers are left home alone. Whether you've been that teenager or the parent or just the friend who broke the vase at the party. Um, and, the, and the parents are, they're landing at the airport or they're leaving the hotel and they call, right? And they, they call and say, hey, just want to let you know we'll be home uh, in an hour, hour and a half, right? And what's happening in that, that subtext, that underlayer is like, hey, whatever, <laughs> whatever's gone on, it's time to clean that up before we get there. And so Paul is doing that same thing. He's saying, hey, I'm writing to you this rather harsh letter so that when I show up, I don't have to be harsh. I, God's given me this authority to build you up, not to tear you down. But if I get there and things are still in disarray, like I, I'm going to have to do that work of tearing down so that you can be built up into God's vision for your transformation in this new life that he wants to build into you. And then we get to this section that in my Bible says, final greetings. 
which for some of us, when we're reading the Bible, right, we get to that section in one of the letters Paul's written, and we're like, oh, this is the extra credit section. Uh, I'm good now. Like, I finished the book, right? The final greetings thing, a lot of times, it feels like it follows the same pattern, right? And so if we've read a few books in the Bible, we kind of feel like, I don't need to read this again. It's just the same thing again. And the truth is, in the ancient Roman world, uh, those final greetings, uh, both in letters that we have in the Bible and secular letters that we have from the time, there is sort of a pattern for that final greeting, Uh, The same way that if uh, I were to send you a business email and my uh, email signature was at the bottom, it would have my name, let's say the Church of Rocky Peak, and then my position title, and then probably my email address or my phone number. And we've kind of begun to expect that things kind of end that way. And the same way uh, in their world for letters like this, there would be a form for ending a letter. But what's awesome is to watch Paul masterfully take what's the expected form and to shape that to once again push the truth of the gospel. And if we just gloss over it, we miss that he's using this as one final push for the truth of Jesus and the the vision that God has for them living out that truth in their lives. And so in verse 11, as we jump into this final kind of greeting at the end, this is what it says. It says, finally which for those of us who've been through the whole series, we're also echoing. Finally, (laughs) brothers and sisters. And so the word here in the Greek is a single word for for family. It's a word that Paul hasn't used since chapter 10, since he began sort of taking that, that harsh tone against those critics who are challenging God's work in this church. And so once again, he's reminding them, brothers and sisters, we are, we are family in Jesus, no matter what we've gone through, no matter what has happened, that in him, we now have new community. We're family, we're brothers and sisters. Rejoice, he says. And this word rejoice, uh, all throughout Paul's letters, this Greek word is translated rejoice. Anytime we find it in the middle of one of his letters, it's translated rejoice. If you have the old NIV, it just translates it goodbye. Uh, because this was a, a common word in the Roman Empire for a, a beginning greeting or ending greeting in a letter. But Paul is using it, uh, again, crafting it and, and using every kind of piece of this that he can to remind them that they have something to rejoice in, in Jesus, because of what he's done for them. No matter what else is going on in that church, they have a reason to rejoice. He says, strive for full restoration. That's that same word for mending that we had up above in verse nine. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Literally think the same thing. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. He's encouraging them, hey, as you begin to try to live out this vision, remember who it is that is with you. It's the God of love and the God of peace who is with you, making this new way of living possible. Without him, we can't attain it, and with him, it's assured, because he is the God of love and peace. And then in verse 12, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, you know, at Rocky Peak, we're real big on obeying scripture. We're real big on this idea of listen and follow. Uh, And so I'm gonna need you to turn to your neighbor. Okay, all right. Um, this is one of those verses that when we're reading, we're like, especially if you're brand new to the Bible, you're like, and you're like really growing in your walk with God, and you're really like looking to obey Him at every turn, and you're like, wait, greet each other with a holy kiss? What? 
what is this? Like when, I, when I'm at Rocky Peak and we stand up and greet everyone, they like, we shake hands awkwardly and maybe I like whisper my name to, to my neighbor. Um, and we like, we do that, that whole, but no one's like kissing anybody. Uh, first impressions isn't like applying chapstick ahead of time. Like there's no, there's no kissing that's happening. And so uh, Paul is using this. And so it's not, a, it's not a romantic kiss, right? He calls it a holy kiss as a way to kind of uh, set it apart as something unique. But it's, uh, it's a cultural thing that in that time that when you were greeting your family, much like many European cultures still do, that you would, you would kiss them either on the cheek or on the forehead or the shoulder or one commentary said the foot, which, no thank you. Um, and so you, you would kiss someone as a way of greeting them warmly. If it was a close friend, you would do the same thing. And so Paul is once again encouraging them, like, hey, greet each other warmly like we're family because that's who we are in Jesus. And so this idea of a holy kiss or a warm greeting becomes a physical representation of the spiritual reality that God has done something inside of us, that he's knit us together, that he's forming this new community, this new transformed way of living uh, inside us. In verse 13, again, and if you've read any of Paul's letters, uh, you've probably seen sometimes the list of people that he includes at the end, at the end of Romans, which uh, he'll write actually in a few months from the city of Corinth. Uh, he lists a whole litany of people. Uh, there's a whole like, say hi to these people, and then these people are saying hi to you. Uh, and that's the, kind of the usual way that you would end um, that you would end a letter like this. A lot like uh, in my family, at, a lot of times at dinner time, my parents would be talking to my grandparents, and at the end, you know, you'd hold the phone out and be like, say hi to grandma and grandpa, right? And so at the end of the letter, they'd have this sort of greeting section, and Paul kind of once again crafts that and uses that as a way to push this idea of unity in a transformed way of living. Instead of saying uh, and listing all of these individual people, all he says is all God's people here send their greetings. All of God's people. Once again, pushing this idea that we are in this together. And then we get to the final line. Usually the way Paul kind of lands the plane is with a very similar phrase at the end of all of his books. And he'll say, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Right, that's verbatim the way he ends 1 Thessalonians. And so he'll say that usually. And so we, it appears that he's getting to the end of 2 Corinthians and he's still kind of feeling that tension. He still feels like, like they're going to need a, a final reminder of everything uh, that is necessary for their transformation. And he goes into this really unique Trinitarian final thought that is, is unique in all of Paul's writings. It's the only book that he ends this way. And so this is what he says. He says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He's reminding them that, that if they're going to live this new transformed life, if they're going to be transformed by God, that they need the grace of Jesus. They need his forgiveness that came not because they earned it, not because they merited it, but because he saw them and loved them and died for them and forgave them before they ever moved closer to him. That then gives them access to the love of God that gives them access to the unending supply of love from the Father. And that they also need the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, his presence in their life from the moment they submitted to him that brought them into new relationship, new communion with God and who's building in them a new community with each other. And so that Rocky Peak is 2 Corinthians. You've made it. You reached the end. You finished. 
Keep your finger there in that book or keep your app open. There are a couple of passages we're going to look at as we kind of uh, land the plane on this book of the Bible together. Um, but we made it through. And so as we wrap up, there are, there are three principles that relate to God's plan for transformation, his metamorphosis in our life that I want to pull out of today's passage. So there on your note sheet, there's a section, three truths for transformation. Three truths for transformation. And the first truth is this, that God's vision is to build up. God's vision is to build up. In 2 Corinthians 13, 10, we start to see this. We see God's vision leaking through Paul's heart as he shares. This is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in the use of my authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Those are two very different goals, two very different end games. That God has given this authority to Paul, that God's vision for our life isn't ultimately to tear down, but it's to build us up into what it is that he has planned. Paul knows the danger is that the Corinthians will think that he's writing simply to put them in their place, to tear them down, to challenge these critics of his and to reassert his own authority. But his desire is to be pointing them to the truth of Jesus. This is now that point in that difficult conversation where you regroup and you remind whoever it is that you're talking with, like, man, I, I love you. I care about you. I want what's best for you. I'm here to build you up, not to tear you down. I'm not here for the sake of winning an argument for the, the sake of winning. I am here because I care about you. And for us, we might even be tempted as we get to the end of 2 Corinthians to kind of lump it in with a group of books of the Bible that we're like, oh, well, this is just kind of a negative book or a bummer of a book in the Bible. We've been feeling that tension over the last three chapters. And if we're not careful, it's easy to kind of let that tension define the, the character and the tone of the whole book. Uh, but we've seen throughout the series God's heart behind 2 Corinthians. And so if you've still got your finger there in the book, we're going to go over uh, to the left uh, a bit to chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 has really been sort of our theme verse for this series, the, the verse that has really for us defined the heart of what it is that we're talking about. And so this is what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. And we talked about when we first went over this verse uh, at this point months ago, uh, that this idea of, of beholding the Lord's glory with unveiled faces, that Paul is using a metaphor for, from the Old Testament to talk about how now in Jesus that we have a unique, close relationship with God that was reserved for very few people through history. But that because of what Jesus has done for us, we now have that level of close relationship with him. And he says, and we all are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. And so the goal is that the Corinthians would get back on track, that they would be fully restored. They would experience the ever increasing glory that is coming as a result of their transformation. And that's the same vision that God has for you and I. That when we give ourselves to Jesus, that he begins this amazing process of transformation in our life. If you flip to the right a little bit to 2 Corinthians 5, 
It says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself and Christ not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This is the message. This is God's vision that he is for you, not against you. That a new day has dawned the things that once stood between you and God have been reconciled. The great reckoning has begun. That your sins have been forgiven. That a new creation is here. That we are being transformed. And Paul's desire is to see the Corinthians embrace everything that the Lord has for them in Christ. That this reconciliation with God would characterize even their relationships with each other. And so we see this in verse 11. And so uh, if you want to flip back, finally, to chapter 13... We're getting our, our workout, flipping through uh, 2 Corinthians this morning. In chapter 13, verse 11, he lays out his final encouragement for them, his final kind of vision of what does this transformed life planted in Jesus, being built up, what does that look like for them and their relationships? And so in verse 11, he's, he calls them brothers and sisters, which we talked about a little earlier, that as we're living these transformed lives, that our, our, our relationships are transformed, that we live as family with one another, and it doesn't matter what our, our race, class, gender, or background is, that we are now family, that we are now brothers and sisters. He says, rejoice, that even in Corinth, Paul encourages them that even with their, their brokenness, that in Jesus, that they have something to rejoice over together. That a transformed life is a life full of joy because of Jesus. He says, strive for full restoration. That even with the factions, the dissensions, the unrest, and the unhealth, that Paul encourages them that there is hope in Jesus for their mending and their coming back together. He says, encourage one another. And so this word in the Greek could be encourage, it could be exhort, right, to push someone forward. Uh, It's translated in chapter 1 as comfort. And so it's this idea that we also see represented in in Hebrews 10 that we're supposed to spur one another on to good deeds, that that we're to remind each other of the truth of Jesus and his vision for our life, that in Jesus we do life together. We're not out here on our own, that we're designed to be encouraging each other, to be pushing each other forward towards what God has for us. He says, be of one mind, that has transformed people even when we passionately disagree with each other on something that because we have the same goal, to see God glorified and lifted up through our lives, that because we have the same goal, we can be of one mind even when we have passionate disagreement. He says, lastly, live in peace. The vision is unity with one another. The mark of true followers of Jesus who have experienced metamorphosis is love for one another. And so when he's writing, Paul's desire is that they would apply the work of Jesus in a way that leads to this transformed new way of living. That they would be people built up on the truth of the gospel. That the truth of Jesus' radical sacrifice for them would result in transformed lives and deep community. This is Paul's heart. This is his vision. But he leaves open the possibility 
that if they don't turn around and they don't work on it in his absence, that his work of building them up is going to begin with tearing them down, which leads to our next point. Our next point is this, that transformative construction begins with demolition. Transformative construction begins with demolition. Uh, there's a, a house on my street um, in Simi, and the neighborhood was probably built in the 60s or the 70s, uh, and, and this house that sit there, uh, it probably hasn't been like updated, touched up, anything done to it uh, since it was first built. Uh, it was one of those houses that as I would drive past, right, it would make me feel a little bit better about my own uh, state of living. I'd be like, well, at least, you know, and not, not that that's right, but just being honest. Uh, maybe something I should work on in my own life. And so it was, just, it was one of those houses. And then uh, after a while and kind of passing by it for a couple of years, uh, a sign was put in the, the front yard, a for sale sign. I was like, oh, that's, uh, that's great. Maybe someone will pick up this fixer-upper. Maybe something will happen with it. And this for sale sign sat there for a while. Uh, and then one day, there was a big old sold sticker on it, right? And then, on my way to work, so I was driving by it almost every day, and uh, nothing's happening. Signs just kind of sitting there for a couple of weeks, for quite a while. And then eventually, construction crews show up, and they move a big old dumpster into that driveway. Like one of those giant ones, right? So tall that you can't even see inside of it. Just a big old thing. And they start tearing that place apart. Right? The, the roof comes off. The door comes out. You start seeing the interior, the carpet coming out, the flooring coming out, uh, all of the bathroom fixtures and everything else coming out. The walls come down until eventually, in like less than a week, they had it down to the studs, down to just the wooden framework, the skeleton of that house. And so what had once been a house that you could legitimately live in that would provide shelter for a family, it was now like pretty much useless. It had to be kind of wrapped in tarps uh, when they would leave every evening. Um, and it was like barely, like barely there at all. And then after that demolition process, I got to watch day after day as I drove past as they began adding to it, right? Moving some of the walls around bringing back in a, a brand new bathtub, brand new shower, brand new kitchen sink, new appliances, new carpets started rolling in, brand new front door. They started putting walls up again, new coat of paint, new roof on top. It was kind of cool to watch because everything was so open. You could watch them changing around the floor plan, which is the kind of thing you only notice when, when your house is in a similar neighborhood. And you're like, oh, that kind of, oh they're doing that. How cool. Uh, and what was, was awesome to see is to watch the new owner's vision for this house coming to fruition. But it was a vision that could only have been attained after the process of demolition had happened. And in order for that kind of transformative construction of this house to happen, they had to do some massive tearing down. Right? And so now it's the house that I drive past and I feel badly uh, instead of feeling good about myself. And again, still working on that. But, but this house is beautiful. It's like the, the most beautiful house on the block. And they didn't simply put a new coat of paint on the outside or, or add a, a temporary room uh, onto the back. They absolutely radically changed this thing inside and out. And so in order to get there, in order to get to that level of beauty, construction required demolition. And so Paul knew that this might be necessary in Corinth. He's encouraging them to get to work before he gets there. He says in verse 5, he says, test yourselves. And he says, so they don't have to be harsh in verse 10. 
so, I can, so he can build them up when he gets there. But Paul knew that in order for that to happen, they were going to have to do that demolition without him before he arrived. All series, we've been talking about this idea of metamorphosis, the idea of transformation, that God wants to affect miraculous life change in you. In the same way that Paul's hope was that the Corinthians would be built up, so too God wants to build you into something amazing. The Bible describes you as his workmanship, his work that he is bringing to completion. The way we've said it before at Rocky Peak is that he has an epic vision for your life, a new way of living, of doing relationships, of understanding yourself and your value, of relating with him, a new way of radical trust and radical generosity and radical goodness and radical joy. And he's welcoming you into a beautiful relationship of trust that results in breathtaking transformation, what Jesus describes in John 10.10 as life to the full that he came to bring. But this requires renewal in Jesus and submission to his way of living. On your note sheet is uh, the verse Romans uh, 12.2 which we've come to multiple times in this mini-series, talking about being transformed by truth. And it says this, do not conform to the pattern of the world. We can't stay the same and experience everything that Jesus has for us. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Something has to change. Even the way we think has to change if we're going to experience God's vision for our life. Something radical needs to be upended in us that will set us apart from those around us. In order for us to experience his plan of new life and transformation for us, something has to be torn down. And so maybe for you, it's, it's our, our world's idea, what's so popular in our culture, uh, that happiness is the ultimate good. That happiness is what we should be striving for with every, with every breath that we take. That other things should be sacrificed for our own happiness, whether it's our friendships or our integrity or our families or even our relationship with God. And maybe that needs to be torn down. Maybe it's the the happily ever after narrative that romantic love is the answer to life's problems, that it's the road to joy and happiness. And maybe that is something that God needs to tear down. Maybe it's your pride. Your insistence that you can do it alone, that you are self-sufficient, that you don't need to let anyone else in, that you are fine the way things are. And so maybe it's your pride, your self-reliance that needs to be torn down. Maybe it's our natural inclination to define the worth of others instead of how God defines them, to define them by how much benefit they bring to us. That results in us praising other people when we know that that'll make us look good or help us move forward in life, but then on the flip side, ridiculing people or blasting them online or being terrible to their face when we think that that is what is gonna push forward our own status. These old structures, these old thought patterns need to come down. If God is gonna build us up, that kind of transformative construction requires deliberate demolition. So that leads us to our last point. There on your note sheet, the third point is this, is that transformation is risky. Transformation is risky. 
In a room like this, probably for many of us, but I know at, at least for me in my life, I become so focused on what I'll lose by submitting to Jesus that I lose sight of what I stand to gain. I get locked in on the demolition and I forget about his building plans. And we're so quick to misunderstand God's motivation in our life, his goal for our transformation. We fear that his heart is to destroy us, is to tear us down and leave us separated from what brings us what limited joy or comfort or security or meaning that we have in this life. But no, his desire is to build you up to provide you an endless supply of joy, comfort, security, and meaning in him. It's to build you into the image of his son, to build in you a heart that beats like his heart, that loves what he loves, to be blessed by him and to be transformed into a blessing to other people. He desires to lead you on the path to full life into transformed relationships and a way of living. And it's so easy for us to forget his motivation and his desire. That's especially a danger for us when it, comes to, when it comes to our time and his word. So quickly we see the Bible, we see God's word, his truth as a wrecking ball threatening our security and our identity. That's just gonna come swinging through, tearing down the things that we depend on in our life. We see his authority as hostile to our well-being when in reality it's his word, his truth, that's necessary for our new way of living, for our minds to be renewed and for our lives to be transformed. If we are truly to be transformed, to be built up, it requires not just understanding and reading and knowing his truth, right? whether that's sitting down and reading it on our own or listening to a podcast or setting the, the Bible app to read to us or coming to a message like this. It's not just letting it be around us or learning it or understanding it, but it requires us trusting in his goodness and submitting to his will of letting him transform us. That we not just hear his word, but that we trust the goodness that stands behind it. Uh, last year, we bought caterpillars for our kids. I have uh, two kids, uh, Lily, who's four, and Samuel, who's six. Um, and they, we bought them these caterpillars over this last year. It was really, I mean, it was my wife's idea. Uh, I'm like, we want to bring bugs inside the house? It seems kind of productive. Um, I thought that's why we had a house, so we don't have bugs inside the house. Um, then I realized it's not really my house. So... Uh, so we bought the caterpillars. Um, and it was kind of cool. And, and the, the whole idea is, right, the kids get to watch a little bit of the, the miracle of life and get to be interested in science. And so they got to feed them a little and they got to give water to them. And eventually over time, the caterpillars kind of climb up this white mesh cage structure thing and they, they form their little chrysalis. Uh, and then eventually over time, like a week later, they start to like shake and move a little and they start to come out of this. And these little like deformed butterflies kind of flop out and they, they walk up the side of this, uh, this white mesh cage and they kind of sit there uh, waiting to kind of be strong enough to fly. Uh, but what was crazy is these butterflies would crawl up there. My wife and I started to see these like these nasty reddish brown spots developing on the side of this white mesh. And we're like, 
are our butterflies dying? Like, what is going on? Quick, kids, don't look. Because uh, it looked like, looked like they were just bleeding, right? And so we do what's natural, and we pull out the phone and start Googling, and like, are my butterflies bleeding profusely? Um, and it turned out lots of people were asking the same question. Uh, and, and initially, the very first answer looked like, yes, the butterflies were bleeding, um, but then actually, it turns out, you shouldn't believe everything you read on the internet. Uh, and, doing some, and finding an actual scientific source, it's like, well, it's not actually blood. Uh, it's leftover metabolic fluid. It's like the, it's the leftovers from the caterpillar turning into the butterfly, and the butterflies even use it to kind of pump up their wings or whatever. And so it's a, a natural part of the process is that this, this fluid kind of oozes out, uh, that it wasn't painful. It was a natural part of what was going on. Um, and, for, and you can imagine, right, like a little caterpillar looking at his, his buddies who are butterflies just coming out. It's like, what the... No, thank you. Whatever happened to them, don't, I'm good. Eating the leaves, I don't ever need to fly. Um, and for us sometimes, God calls us to something that feels like radical submission in our lives and we look at it and it looks painful on the outside. It looks like he's requiring us to cut off something important, to, to bleed, to be transformed. And it, it looks completely unenjoyable. It looks like he, what he wants to do is to hurt us. But the truth is that he wants us to be transformed into amazing creations. The workmanship of his hands, the, the images of his son, which means that we become representatives and representations of the infinitely loving God. We become walking presentations of his gospel of love and grace. That what's painful to shed today is exactly what it is that's holding us back from his vision in our life. That today's tearing down is tomorrow's building up. That today's demolition is tomorrow's construction. That today's submission is tomorrow's joy. Right? Transformation is risky. You have a lot to lose. You have a lot that he may call you to give up. There may be something that you've held on to for a long time that you've used as a support even maybe from the time that you were young. That's been a central part of your life. It could be a close relationship, it could be a, a habit, it could just be a way of thinking about yourself and the world. And it's gonna risk a lot to offer that in submission to Jesus. But you have so much more to gain. There is so much more that he wants to do in your life. There is so much that he wants to do that none of us could ever possibly imagine. There is new transformation, new life, new things that he wants to do. Transformation is risky, but it is so worth it. And so as we get ready to wrap up 2 Corinthians, there are two questions there on your note sheet under a section creatively titled, Two Questions. <laughs> the, first, uh, the first question is, what needs to be torn down? What needs to be torn down? Is there an area of your life that needs to be blown up, to be dug out, to be ripped down? Is there sexual sin that is providing you limited comfort? Are you living with a boyfriend or a girlfriend instead of getting married? Maybe it's sneaking pornography and justifying its effects in your life. Maybe it's just simply harboring lustful fantasies for an acquaintance, but is there, is there sexual sin that you're leaning on because life is maybe too hard and you need that comfort when God is calling you into something greater. 
He wants to open that back up, but then he wants to fill that area of your life in a way that the sin won't. Or is it maybe in the area of your finances? Are you holding on to limited control of your finances? Is he calling you to let your finances be an area that that he has control over? Are you maybe the person who will give, you're like, God, I'll give you my time and I'll spend time in your word and I'll listen to worship in the truck on the way to work and I'll, I'll do everything for you, but with my, my finances, like I'll give you this portion, this, this sliver is yours and God is calling you and he's saying, no, I paid the price for you. You are mine, everything you have. The money you buy food with, your home, your car, all of that is mine. And maybe he's calling you to a new level of submission and surrender in your finances, not to see a sliver of his, his, but to see everything that he's given you as ultimately his that you're simply a steward of. And maybe he wants you to offer that in submission, and maybe he'll be like, great, good, you're doing a great job, nothing changes. Or maybe he'll want to do new, miraculous, awesome things with you that would never be possible if you held on to that area of control. Or maybe it's an anger and bitterness that you've allowed to build up in your life. Maybe you've been legitimately hurt by someone or multiple someones in your life and you've built up a wall of anger and bitterness that's become protection for you. That you've been hurt and you don't want to be hurt again and so you've just, you've let this kind of fester in your life and it's served to kind of keep people at bay and you found yourself not able to be hurt, but it's also limiting the depth of relationship that you're able to experience. And God is calling you to offer this area of submission, to tear down that, that wall of anger. But it requires you stepping into something scary. It requires you being willing to be open, to be vulnerable. What he is saying is, hey, if you give this over, if you forgive if you're filled with my love, if you offer grace the way that I gave to you that was unmerited and unearned, if you offer that to others, then I want to do something new and amazing in your life. Maybe it's in that area that God is calling for something to be torn down. So are you going to be the one to invite God into that process, trusting that he has something better in his plans for you? Or are you going to hold on to what's giving you limited joy and protection in your life and forsake the amazing vision that God has planned for his transformation work down in you? The second question is this, is do you trust God to rebuild? Do you trust God to rebuild? Are you stuck believing the lie that God wants to take from you what is giving you life? If you examine emotionally how you feel about God, do you think of him as someone who is for you or against you? We're in church. We all know the right answer. We all know what we should say. We've all just read in his word. We understand that he has given himself to us, that he loves us and cares for us. But when you look in your life and you imagine his call for transformation, does that feel like something that is good? Or is that well up feelings of fear? And is that rooted in maybe a concern that his desire is simply to take? Or are you 
going to move towards trusting him to rebuild something in place of what it is he's calling to have torn down? Are you trusting that his passion is to build you up? Do you really believe that he wants to do amazing things in your life? What does it look like to trust his heart for you in this difficult area of obedience? In a moment, we're going to go into a, a time of communion. Uh, and you've seen the tables around the, the room, and we're going to be enjoying that together as a family. And as we do, I want to remind us of that final verse in 2 Corinthians. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul is reminding the church of what's necessary for their transformation, of them being able to grab hold of God's epic vision for their life, to be uh, transformed into something new. And so he reminds them that the power for transformation comes from the grace of Jesus in them. And it's through his forgiveness because each of us have been offered that forgiveness, not based on what we've done, not based on who we are, before we ever took a single step towards him at all. While we were still his enemies, the Bible says. He gave himself for us. And that through that, we have access to the unending, amazing love of the Father. And we have communion with God, a brand new kind of relationship offered to us that is also building in us fellowship with each other. And so communion is a chance for us together as, as God's family to celebrate the single historical action that made that transformation in our lives possible. To celebrate what Jesus did on the cross by giving his life over to us. On the tables, there's both bread and, and little cups of wine and those symbolize his body broken for us and his blood spilled for us. That Jesus truly actually lived and allowed himself to be tortured and put to death on our behalf. Now, the truth is someone did have to bleed in order for us to be transformed. But that person was Jesus. And that action has happened. And his love is being made available to us. And so this is a, a time for the family of God to remember what's already happened for us. Uh, to take part in an act of remembrance for what it is that we've already received. And so if you're here today and you have yet to, to trust Jesus with your life, I want to encourage you to, to take this maybe as a moment to pause, to, to think, uh, to, to think through some of the things that we've talked about today, but that, that this action is for, for those of us who have already received his forgiveness, and it's an act of remembrance for that. Similar to wearing a wedding ring, it would be kind of odd to wear it uh, before the, the wedding really were to take place. Uh, but if you're here and this idea of living a new transformed life, of having God's power work out in you, of receiving forgiveness offered before you ever do anything, if that's something that you would like to do, if you want to give your life over to Jesus today for the very first time, I can't think of any better way to do that than by participating in communion, by grabbing that bread and that wine, pausing in a moment of prayer and thanking him for the forgiveness offered to you because of that sacrifice and to joining the family of God as we join in in this celebration together. As we go to this time of communion, the band is going to be uh, singing the song Defender. Uh, I absolutely love this song and what it has to say about God's heart for us. That his heart is to love us, to care for us, to build us up, to defend us, right? One of the pictures in the Old Testament all throughout the Psalms is that he is our refuge, that he's our place that we go to, our place of strength when the rest of the world is falling apart. That God's heart is to save his people. He has loved us through Jesus. The very beginning of the song uses uh, some very Old Testament language. 
uh, kind of calling back the picture of God's defeat of Goliath. Goliath who was defeated and then beheaded. And then in the same way that David got to claim God's victory as his own, that God has defeated our enemy and he's humiliated him on the cross. And that Jesus' victory on the cross over sin and death is something that we get to claim as our own because of who he is and because of what he's done. That our transformation into his vision for our life is not a gamble, it's not a long shot, it's a sure thing because of the power of the work of Jesus. And because of who he is and his love and his care and his heart for us, life is so much better when we live it his way. So as you head to the table, I want, I want you to remember God's heart towards you, that this is the ultimate picture of his love and sacrifice, what he was willing to go, for, go forward towards in order for you to be moving towards him, that he was willing to sacrifice everything, that his heart is to build you up and not tear you down. And I want you to take the courage to ask him if there is anything in your life that needs to be demolished. Is there anything that needs to be torn down so that you can experience the fullness of his plan for transformation and the beauty of who it is that he is wanting to make you to be? Father, we thank you for your love for us demonstrated in the cross. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are constantly, day in and day out, dragging us into a relationship with you. And we want to offer this time to you as we celebrate your love for us through this act of communion together as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.